I want to begin with a story. Uh, this past Tuesday afternoon, I was in Birmingham, Alabama, briefly for a conference, and there was a youngish pastor who spoke to us. His name was Leonce Crump, and Leonce talked about how he had been an athlete. In fact, he was an All-American wrestler at Oklahoma. He was an All-American football player at Oklahoma, and he later played for the New Orleans Saints in the NFL. And he said, with the athletic success that he had, he grew up with this mindset that I'm a winner. I am somebody who wins. And he said that was just part of his identity. You know, I win. I know how to win. Well, after the NFL, God called him to plant a church in, uh, in uh, Birmingham. And uh, he went with great dreams and hopes. He's uh, gathered a core group, but after some time, it became clear to him that they wanted him to plant the church and not them to plant the church. And it just didn't work out, and uh, after a bit, they needed to close their doors. And he said, because his extensive mindset was, I'm a winner, he was not deterred. He said, I, I, you know, this one failed, but we're going to do it again, try it again. And, and he relaunched it. This time he went to downtown Atlanta, that's where he's feeling God leading him. He and his wife and uh, at least one child by this time. It was a tough section. They had gathered about 30 people in their core group, but there was a shooting in the area. It was tough, and 27 of the 30 people in his launch team ended up moving out of the area. And so, again, they closed their doors. But again, he's not uh, devastated by it. He just sees himself, I am somebody who wins. This is who I am. And so he starts again. We'll try it again, the third time. So for the third time, he's planting a church in Atlanta, called to, to pastor a church there. Uh, it, they never really get off the ground. And for the third time, they have to close their doors. This time, he's devastated. He just feels like this was God's calling. I have failed I am a failure as a pastor. I cannot even provide for my own family. He gathers his wife and his three small kids, and they go home to his parents' house for a visit, godly parents. And he is just pouring his heart out to his mom in the kitchen that, you know, he's a failure as a pastor. This is what God called him to. He can't even provide for his family. He's failed three times to get a church going in Atlanta. And now he just feels like a failure. Now, this is what his mother did. By the way, what would you do if you had been his mom and your son came to you and said, I am a failure? This is what she did. She sits him down in the kitchen table, and she opens the Bible. And he says that she opened the Bible to Ephesians 1, verse 3, and I lit up. And she read verses 3 through 14 to him, the passage that we are, are soaking in these days. And I'm going to read it now. At this point, if you would stand up, I know he was sitting in the kitchen, but we stand here when I read the Bible at the start. So we'll stand. But imagine the sense of failure that Leon's Crump is feeling as you hear these words. His mother reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He, we, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory." And when she finished reading through that passage, she closed her Bible and looked at her son in the eyes and said, Son, you are not a failure. No matter what happens to you as a pastor, you will never be a failure because you are the one who has been blessed in Jesus Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And you have been adopted, you've been chosen, you've been loved, you've been redeemed, uh, you have an inheritance. You've been sealed. This is who you are. And he said to this young man, clearly, uh, it was, these were life-breathing, life-giving words. Please be seated. Church, you are not your vocation. Some of you don't have a job right now. You are not your vocation. You are not your past achievements or lack of achievements. But you are. If you, are, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, you are the person who has been given by the grace of God every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. And that is your identity. And that is who you are. And you will never be a failure, no matter what happens in your life. We, too, like the young Leon's Crump, desperately need to see ourselves as God sees us, as he says that we are. Now, we're not, last week we got the first four verses. We're going to take the next four right now. We pick up the passage in verse 7 when Paul says of you and me, everyone who has trusted Christ as Savior, he says of us, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. In him, in Christ, everything that God's given to us is in Christ and through Christ. Nothing that God does for us is apart from Christ. It is all because we are connected to Christ and united to Christ because Christ died for us on the cross to win our salvation. In him, we have redemption. Now, that word redemption is a beautiful word because it always has the nuance of redeeming someone from slavery, from captivity. It had the idea of captivity. Now, there is a classic example 
in the Bible of God redeeming a people out of captivity and slavery. In fact, we spent a, a month on it in the book of Exodus. That is the classic example of God's redeeming work when he uh, takes his people who had been 400 years in slavery, captives in Egypt, and he rescues them. And he rescues them. That's redemption. In the Greek world at this time, the major cities, up to a third of the people were slaves. If you can believe that, it wasn't based on race. Uh, it wasn't as harsh as the slavery. No, but it was still slavery. A third of the people in the major cities of the Roman Empire at this time were slaves. And whenever one of those slaves was purchased out of the slavery and give, or given their freedom, this same Greek word was used, redemption. Redemption. And so God is saying that you and I were captives. What were we captives to? We were captives to our sin. We had no choice but to sin because we were born in sin. We uh, were steeped in sin. It was our nature to sin. We could not live the way that really down deep we longed to live to please God because we were slaves of sin. And this is what God did. He said, you cannot do anything about this. You don't have the, the, the money to pay that purchase price, but I do. And I'm going to send my son, and he is going to purchase you out of slavery. That's what redemption is all about. God redeems us out of our slavery or sin. Now, the, the purchase price, it's right there. In him we have redemption uh, through his blood. So the purchase price for your redemption out of slavery to sin and eternal hell and punishment from God is nothing less than the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Now, why does the price have to be all that high? I mean, can you imagine anything higher that God himself has to shed his blood? Well, this is why. It's simple. The Bible says that because God is a holy God, we as sinners against a holy God, the wages of sin is death. Now, death, we think of as physical death. I did a funeral yesterday afternoon. But primary death is simply being separated from the life of God in every way. That's real death. And we can die eternally if we don't do something about it. Physical death is just an expression of that. Now, because of our sin, we have death. The wages of sin is death. But God said, I will die in your place. I will send my own son, who is just as much God as God the Father, God the Son. He'll become a man. He will live a perfect life. He will, uh, the whole culmination of his life will be that he will be crucified to a Roman cross. I will die in the form of my son in your place. And so, 2,000 years ago, some of you have been to the spot, or could very well be the spot in Jerusalem where it happened, where Jesus Christ, the only perfect person to ever live, was brutally nailed to a cross. And when he was on that cross, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that point, he was separated from God because he took all of your sins and he paid for them. Now, I'm talking about every one of your sins. We're placed on Jesus, and he paid for them. He paid his own blood, his own death, his own life. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, that was the price of your redemption. In him, we have redemption through his blood. And so, who are you? You're not a geologist or a teacher or a homemaker or a mother. Or, or I mean, those are just incidentals. The essence of who you are is you're the man or the woman, the boy or the girl that Christ has redeemed by his blood. And with redemption, or with this blood, 
The Bible says that's the key to heaven. Christ's blood is heaven's key. You want to know how to get into heaven? Well, the key that unlocks the door is the blood of Christ. As John Piper put it once, Christ is the glory of God. His blood-soaked cross is the blazing center of that glory. Did you hear that? The blood-soaked cross is the center, the blazing center of the glory of God. It is where you see the love, the grace, the mercy, the power, the wisdom, the justice, the mercy, all the glory of God most fully displayed. By the cross, He bought for us every blessing. We don't deserve any. He bought them all. Because of Christ's cross, God's elect are destined to be sons of God. Because of His cross, all guilt is removed and sins are forgiven. The cross of Christ is the burning center of the glory of God. A cross-centered, cross-exalting, cross-saturated life is a God-glorifying life. All others are wasted. Friends, the very heart and center of our faith is none other than a cross. That is why it is our symbol down through the ages. The cross of Jesus. Every time you read in the Old Testament, sacrifices upon sacrifices upon sacrifices, the blood ran. Every single one of those was a pointer to the cross of Jesus, the Lamb of God who would one day come. Our entire glory is in the cross of Jesus. You do not understand Christ till you understand His cross, as it has been said. The first prominent missionary to the Muslim world was a man by the name of Samuel Zwemer. And he talked about the cross in the context of the Muslim world. And this is what he wrote. He said, if the cross of Christ is anything to the mind, it is surely everything. The most profound reality and the sublimest majesty. One comes to, the, to realize that literally all the wealth and glory of the gospel centers here. The cross is the pivot as well as the center of New Testament thought. It is the exclusive mark of the Christian faith, the symbol of Christianity. We rediscover the apostolic emphasis on the cross when we read the gospel with Muslims. That's what he called them. He says, we find that although the offense of the cross remains, its magnetic power is irresistible. They may not always accept it, but there is a magnetic power about the cross that is irresistible. I mean, think about it. You mean the whole center of our faith is that God would come and become a man so he could die for us on a cross and give us the free gift of life. I mean, that is so different than any other religion in the world. And it is different than how three-fourths of the Christian church around the world understands the gospel. It is all the grace of God. Who are you? Well, all of these things are true of you, but perhaps the epicenter. You are the one redeemed by the shed blood of Jesus. That's who you are. With redemption does come forgiveness. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And as I just said, all of your trespasses, all of your sins, all of them, past, present, and future, they were all future when Christ died. All of them were placed on Christ and he paid them. So they're paid for. So just say that this week you mess up big time. And you feel really guilty. What is the solution to that guilt problem? Well, I'll tell you what it's not. It is not going around under a huge load of guilt. It is not some kind of self-flagellation and some kind of doing penance for yourself. Something like that. It is not more religious efforts. 
Do you know what the solution to your guilt problem is? You pivot, you turn, you look at the cross of Jesus and said, that is the solution to my sin and my guilt. It was paid for by Jesus. He has set me free. Yea, God. Every time you come under a load of condemnation and guilt, you look at the cross. It does not honor God for you and me to feel guilty over sins that Christ paid for. It does not. It does not honor God. You, like Paul, like David, become a champion of grace. Oh, God, thank you for your forgiveness and grace to me. A few years ago, I was talking from some passage here on Sunday about the grace and the forgiveness of God we have through the blood of Christ. And there was a woman here who had gone through a divorce, and she said she had lived in eight years of extensive guilt because of that divorce. And uh, the next day or two, she sent me an email, and this week I asked her for permission to read her powerful email. This is what she wrote. For eight years, I've walked around with a big red D on my forehead. I believe so many lies of the enemy. I've ruined my children's lives. God couldn't love me because he hates divorce. You don't deserve a happy marriage, and so many, many more. I've been consumed with guilt for eight long years. While I believe and understand in my head that God has forgiven me and that he loves me, I just couldn't seem to completely let this soak into my heart. I wouldn't allow God and his love to completely consume me. I just couldn't see how I deserved it. God spoke to me on Sunday loud and clear. I let the tears flow as I listened to you encourage us. Well, encourage me to take the broken chains from around my neck and finally let them drop to the ground. The freedom I felt when I left church, well, I'm not sure I can find the right words to describe it. I literally feel like I can take a deep breath for the first time in eight years. God really does love me. Some of you have been carrying around the broken chains of guilt. And you've been thinking you're doing penance to atone for your sin. What arrogant pride to thank you by your own hard efforts and work that you could do what the cross of Jesus Christ could not do. Humble yourself before God. Oh God, all my hope is in you. All my hope. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The solution to our guilt problem is the cross of Christ. Let the broken chains drop this morning. Who are you? Well, you're the one who's been forgiven for all your sin. Not the one who's perfect, doesn't mess up. We, we got a slew of sin. But we are the ones who have been forgiven for all our sin. He goes on. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to how hard you try. According to how hard you work. According to whether or not you show up for church on Sunday. Oh, no. None of those. You have the redemption of your sin. You have the forgiveness of your trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Not just His grace, but the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, how emphatic is God here? Because you and I can be slow to forgive in the free grace of God. So He's got to be real emphatic with us. 
You are forgiven, not according to how hard you try or your efforts or your good intentions, but according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon you. I don't know what you think about lavish, but I mean just it's poured out all over you. And He has washed you whiter than snow, whiter than snow. That's the grace of God. God's undeserving favor. You know, the whole world is on a performance, religion, treadmill, except for the gospel. We are on the grace plan. We are on the free gift plan. Now, it does anything for your pride because you don't deserve a thing. You don't work hard to, to earn a thing. It's all, it's all of grace. It is all the gift of your God, the riches of His grace. Bono, the lead singer of U2, I know he's a flawed person, but I appreciate his heart about grace. He said the most powerful idea that's entered the world in the last few thousand years, the idea of grace, is the reason I would like to be a Christian. Though as I said to The Edge one day, his guitarist, I sometimes feel more like a fan rather than actually in the band. I can't live up to it. But the reason I would like to is the idea of grace. It's really powerful. And he is right. He has understood what grace means. It is the gift, the favor of God that restores us uh, whiter than snow and wipes out our sin. Friends, this book is a book of grace. If you had to summarize the theme of this book in a, two or three words, it would be sovereign grace of God, or maybe the sovereign love of God. This is all about grace. The gospel is a gospel of grace. Jesus came to bring grace. Our whole life is grace. That means that uh, we are safe and secure in Him forever. And so some people say, well, well, won't we abuse this grace? No, if we really understood grace, we're going to want to please Him and obey Him out of gratitude, not out of duty. And when you get that, you get the Bible. You get the love affair of the Bible. Not out of duty, not out of obligation, not out of, you know, i got to hang on, i got to be good enough, but out of the gift and the grace of God. A few years back, I was asked to go down to MD Anderson to visit an acquaintance. I, this man was 53 years old. He was dying of pancreatic cancer. And uh, I didn't know him well, but I knew him. And I was asked by a friend, would you go visit him? I'm going to call him Bob. I go down to the hospital. I go into the room of Bob, a 53-year-old man who had been an Olympic runner. And we talk a bit. And Bob looks at me, and I appreciate his honesty. He looked at me, and he said, I'll never forget it. He said, Jeff, I'm going to shoot straight with you. I'm afraid to die. And I appreciate his honesty. And I said to him, Bob, are you ready to meet God? And he said, um, well, I think so. I have accepted Jesus as my Savior, but I am worried that I've not been good enough. And I was able to explain to Bob the life-giving freedom of grace. That it's not about us being good enough because nobody could ever be good enough. But because Jesus Christ died for you on the cross, He paid for all of your sin. And when you put your trust in Him, He makes you right with God forever. Bob, have you done that? And we just probably prayed again, if I recall, just to make sure. And um, friends, do not live your life unprepared to die, because you're going to die. If Jesus doesn't come back, you're going to die. But you can know 
on the authority of Jesus Christ and His Word that you don't have to be good enough because Christ was good enough in your place and you have trusted a Savior. Friends, that's good news. That is, in fact, that is the best news ever. The incredible grace of God for sinners like us. This is who you are. You are the person that God has lavished grace upon. There's one more. This is what we've seen that we're about us this morning. Saw some good things last week. This week we've seen we've been redeemed. We're people who've been redeemed by His blood. We have forgiveness of his, all of our sins. Uh, we have received the grace which He's lavished upon us. We're His blood-bought, much-loved children. And then one more. We are in on the inside story. This is what He says in verse 9. He says, making known to us the mystery of His will. Now, that word mystery is kind of mysterious. It's, uh, you know, hard to get our hands on it. This is what it has the idea of. It's like there's an inside story. Everybody didn't understand it, but now God's revealed it to you and I because we're on His team, in His family. We are in, the, we're in on the inside story of God's grand plan for the universe. He goes on to explain that story. He says, He's made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So God's great epic plan from eternity past was to redeem a people for himself. And that would necessitate God the Son becoming a man, dying on a cross, first becoming a baby, dying on a cross, rising from the dead, going back to heaven. One day he will come back and eventually all things will be united under the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. This means that the, that the glory of Jesus will be proclaimed throughout the earth, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be no longer any doubt about Jesus. We will all know that he is Lord of all. And some years passed, some decades passed, a century or so ago, uh, the Netherlands, of all people, Harold, Harold's from the Netherlands, uh, had a prime minister who was a theologian, biblical theologian. His name was Abraham Kuyper. And Abraham Kuyper, I wish the Netherlands would have a prime minister like that today or that we would. But Abraham Kuyper, he once said this. He said, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. And one day, everybody will know that. Every wrong will be righted. Every injustice will be made right. Uh, every knee will bow. All of the redeemed, all, even the physical creation will be renewed. Everything will be united under the headship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. That is the culmination of history. And that's where we're headed. And we might have a lot of uncertainties about who's going to win presidency and, and all kind of stuff and ter turmoil and terrorism. But we know the outcome and we're on the winning team by the grace of Jesus Christ. Because we are in Him. We are in Him. Isn't it interesting? Paul's perspective. I mean, we can be at times just kind of preoccupied with all the problems around us, including that Texas is going to win the game, things like that. J.J. Watt getting hurt. Uh, Paul was in a prison cell. And, and, and he's, his focus was not, you know, my chains are too tight. The food is too cold. The other prisoners I don't like. But rather, his focus was on the lordship of Jesus Christ and where the entire universe was headed. Everything will be united under the lordship of Christ. And 
in the teeth of elections and terrorism and unemployment and cancer cells and all those other things, our eyes must be riveted on the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us in love and will reign again forever. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who are us? Who are we? Who are you? Who am I? Well, I'm not my vocation and neither are you. I'm not my achievements and my failures and neither are you. You are the man or the woman, the boy or the girl that Jesus Christ desperately loves and he came to redeem you with his own shed blood and you are safe in him forever. That is who you are. That is who you are. Drink it deeply. Drink it deeply. He died for you. Perhaps my favorite picture of Jesus dying in my place comes from World War II. In times past, I have shared this story. Here it is. It's a true story about a Catholic priest, a Franciscan priest by the name of Maximilian Kolbe. He came from Warsaw, World War II Warsaw. He had started a Franciscan order called the, the Order of the Immaculate or something like that. And um, in 1941, in February of 1941, Maximilian Kolbe is arrested by the Gestapo. Probably he was speaking out against them. He is sent to Auschwitz. You guys know that Auschwitz was the worst of the worst of the death camps of the Nazis. Millions were killed there. He is put in a barracks. Barracks 14 is, is what it was. And there in that barracks, he continued his pastoral ministry. He would let people pour out their hearts to him. And he would always remind them of the cross. He would make the symbol of the cross, as Catholic priests do, with his frail, emaciated arm in the air. And he would think about the cross, and this is what he would think. He said, Christ's cross has triumphed over its enemies in every age. I believe, even in these darkest days of Poland, the cross will triumph over the swastika. And indeed it did, and it always does. And he did ministry, reminded people of the cross. Well, one night, one of the prisoners in barracks 14 escapes. Now, if you've read about the Holocaust, you know that if anybody escapes one of those barracks, it's bad news for everybody left. And so the next morning, there was a lot of tension in the air as the commandant of the entire camp gathered all the prisoners in the big open yard. And, you know, he begins going through the names, and, and, and this man is missing from barracks 14. So he dismisses all the other barracks except 14. All of those captives, all those prisoners are made to stand in the hot blazing sun while they searched all day for this prisoner. At the end of the day, these exhausted men, uh, they've not found it, their, their, their cellmate. And so the commander is irate, and he shouts at the barracks, barracks 14, okay, 10 of you are going to die in the place of that one cellmate. And he begins calling the names one by one. And he says they're going to die in the starvation bunker, which was worse than the gas chambers and worse than the hanging because it lasted several days without food or water, and it was a painful death. And he begins calling the roll of ten names. He came to one name, and the man just wailed out with a cry, Oh, my wife, my children, what are they going to do? And he finishes calling out the, the, the ten names. And then there's a commotion over on the side, a prisoner stepping out of the line up front, which isn't done. And the man is Maximilian Kobe. And he says to the commandant with a soft, calm voice, could I 
die in the place of that man who cried out? And the commandant said yes. So the prisoner lived. Maximilian Kolbe was placed with the other nine in the starvation bunker, and several days later, they all died. The man who died, I mean, who was, um, he died for, uh, was a man by the name of Franciszek Gojanovic, or something like that. And he survives Auschwitz. And he lives another 43 years until he's 95 years old, dying only in 1998. And for the rest of his life, he would tell anybody who would listen about the man, Maximilian Kolbe, who died in his place. Friends, do you fully know this morning, do we fully, do we fully understand that somebody has died in our place? And it didn't just buy you another 43 years of physical life on the earth. He bought you an entire eternity. The forgiveness of all your sin. Life with God forever. And that was the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you are. You're the one whom Jesus Christ came to die for. Stand with me, please. Dear friend, if you're in the room this morning and you, you haven't understood that this is not about religion or working hard or being good enough, that it's about grace, that it's about a cross, if you haven't understood that before, you understand it now. And if you've never simply received the gift like a beggar receiving a loaf of bread, right now, breathe a prayer. Jesus, I receive you as my Savior. Friends, our whole life is not to measure up, but it's because God has lavished us with grace, and we want to please Him. Oh, God, give us grace. Give us grace. May we see ourselves the way you see us. Amen.